I sat down in front of my computer and clicked on the link. The network logo filled the screen, and a few seconds later, the bumper music and show tagline erupted from my speakers. The episode was slick, and the high production costs were evident as the show's host and guest started talking about the case. My case. For the next 12 minutes, the piece led the viewer through a mystery. One that could be solved if only the police would do their jobs, and if certain people would be forthcoming. Everyone watching would be screaming at their TV, He did it! It's obvious! What are the police trying to hide? It must be a cover-up. As the piece faded to black, I leaned back into my desk chair and sighed. Everything in the segment had been false. Not one thing posted had been factual. Hell, they even got the chief of police's name wrong. Millions of viewers just got a taste of the true crime genre, and it left a bad taste in my mouth. Did they honestly believe what was in this episode was true? Did they intentionally lie? One thing that is certain, true crime doesn't have to be true. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. True crime is a genre as old as Cain and Abel. Okay, maybe not that old, but it's pretty close. The true crime genre is a nonfiction book, magazine, pulp, podcast, movie, or TV series that examines an actual crime and details the actions of real people associated with and affected by criminal events. Murder is the crime most focused on, and serial killers make up 40% of the true crime genre. The very first true crime literature can be traced back to Yang Ying Yu's The Book of Swindles. It is a late Ming Dynasty collection of stories about allegedly true cases of fraud written in approximately 1617. In 1827, Thomas De Quincey published the essay on murder considered as one of the fine arts in Blackwood's magazine, which focused not on the murder or the murderer, but on how society views crime. In 1965, Truman Capote's nonfiction novel In Cold Blood was published. It is usually credited with establishing the modern novelistic style of the genre and the one that rocketed it to great profitability. Today, true crime is not only the most in-demand type of documentary, but it also almost doubles the science documentary, which is number two on the list. Before I start pointing out all of the flaws with true crime, I have to be honest, I love true crime. As a teen, I read Capote's In Cold Blood and was blown away. I followed that one up with Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter, and finally Anne Rule's The Stranger Beside Me. These novels push me towards policing as a profession. From the murder of the Clutter family to Charles Manson to Ted Bundy, I couldn't get enough. As I was getting into policing and starting the police academy, I stumbled across a documentary film called The Thin Blue Line. This documentary focuses on the arrest and conviction of Randall Dale Adams for the murder of Dallas, Texas police officer Robert Wood. I was intrigued by the reenactments and interviews that make up the movie. It only fueled my love of the true crime genre. My love of true crime culminated with what I believe to be the greatest example of the genre, Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. This 1996 documentary detailing the murders of three young boys and the subsequent investigation and criminal convictions is riveting. The documentary convinces you of the innocence of the young man arrested for the heinous crimes and points you toward the obvious culprit, only to pull the rug out from underneath you in subsequent movie installments. Then it happened to me. 
Well, not directly at first, but as my career in law enforcement grew, I started to become involved in high-profile cases. Just working scene security as a patrolman at first, but later as a detective and as a supervisor responsible for managing the investigations. I started to have the inside information, the stuff the public doesn't get to see. That is when I started to notice the huge discrepancies between what actually happened and what the media, including true crime, was publishing. True crime fans love to bang the drums for the genre. They will say that the independent investigations conducted by the journalists and civilians help uncover evidence missed by the police. They will say that the books, shows, and film put pressure on the suspects, forcing them to make mistakes that will lead to an arrest. They will say that by keeping the investigation in the public eye, they put pressure on law enforcement to continue to investigate the cases. And finally, they say that this type of media can exonerate those who have been unjustly convicted of crimes they didn't commit. Let's take a look at each of those independently and break them down. Before I get started, I have to throw a caveat. In all of these cases, it is possible to find that one time where the thing actually happened. To say that something never happened isn't reasonable in the world of anecdotes. People are fallible, mistakes happen, and somebody has proof. I will be talking in generalities, and by generalities, let's call it 99% of the time. I am comfortable making these statements because they are true. The fact that someone can find the one exception doesn't change that. Let's get started. Independent investigations conducted by journalists and civilians help uncover evidence missed by the police. Sorry, doesn't happen. In most cases, the journalists and civilians show up to the crime scene long after it happened. It is hours at the quickest and decades in some cases before these independent investigators even start looking into the crime in question. Nothing can take the place of standing at the scene of the crime. Police investigators respond immediately and start gathering the information right away. Nothing can replace those first few minutes looking over a crime scene and having your brain absorb that information. The investigators will begin using tools to help them recall the scene over and over again in an attempt to decipher what they are seeing. The first tools were simple pen and paper, diagrams of the scene along with detailed notes. Documenting everything from the weather outside to where the potted plant was sitting became common practice in the beginning days of police investigations. Over the years, we've added other technology, from photographs to Polaroids, a staple when I started in the business, to video recordings. Today, investigators have access to video and laser imaging systems that will create a 3D image of the scene, allowing you to do a virtual walkthrough to remember what you first saw. This technology is crucial and important to modern investigations, but even all this high tech can't take the place of boots on the ground. While it is possible to solve a criminal case without being on the scene, it is very, very difficult. These firsthand observations are critical to the investigative process. As for finding evidence the cops missed, I have three little words for you. Chain of custody. Chain of custody is the process that tracks the movement of evidence through its collection, safeguarding, and analysis lifecycle by documenting each person who handled the evidence. This is a critical step in presenting evidence in criminal proceedings. Without proper chain of custody, a judge will not allow the evidence to be submitted and used in the trial. The gathering of evidence at a crime scene has become a specialized skill over the decades. In the past, we would prop up a few folded pieces of paper near an item, snap a picture, and then use our ballpoint pen to pick it up and drop it into a paper sack. With technology today, the gathering, processing, and storage of evidence is more important than ever. 
Crime scene technicians and evidence specialists have become highly specialized. And without them testifying to where the evidence came from and what we did with it after the fact is almost impossible. Major cases are won and lost due to the evidence collection and storage. To think that a random person can walk into a place years after a crime, pick up something everyone else missed, and trot it into court to get a conviction is silly. Of course, you see that on TV, but in real life, it just doesn't happen. The next problem with the independent investigation is that the cops don't release all of the facts of a case to the public. But we have a right to know, the true crime junkies will scream. No, you don't. The general public does not have any right to know the details of a criminal investigation until those details are revealed in a criminal proceeding. The public does have a right to know when something happened, where something happened, and what that something was. That's it. At 12 a.m. at 123 North Main Street, there was a murder. That's all you have a right to know. Over the years, the police have made it common practice to provide small details to the public to offset any fears they might have and to elicit possible witnesses to come forward. You'll see things like brief descriptions of suspects and or persons of interest, how the victim died, and ultimately the victim identity. But many details, as a matter of fact, most details, will be held back. We hold them back so they can be used to verify information we find out later to help determine if people are telling the truth or lying and to help us get a criminal conviction. This upsets the journalists and the true crime aficionados. We are concerned about bringing the perpetrators to justice. The journalists are concerned about ratings. This, of course, means that the independent investigation must rely on public information or conduct their own interviews of people mentioned by the police. Since most of these details have been left out, the independent investigator will need to figure out those details on their own, which will likely be impossible based on the length of time since the crime. The public exposure puts pressure on the suspect forcing them to make mistakes that will lead to an arrest. Pressure certainly happens, but not in the way you think. Having books, TV shows, movies, and podcasts about your suspected crime or about a crime you were involved in but no one knows about can definitely cause pressure. True crime fans would have you believe that the pressure causes the suspects to confess, to clear their conscience, or perhaps to revisit the scene of the crime and tip police off. Maybe dispose of evidence and the police watching them can catch the killer red-handed, wrapping the case up. The journalist gets to be the hero for their intrepid investigations that push the perpetrator into their fatal error. The truth is that when this kind of pressure happens, everyone clams up. The cooperative witness who has spoken to the police on several occasions, always helpful and trying to remember anything they can, find themselves ambushed by a journalist in a coffee shop. The journalist asking questions that the witness has answered many times already, and in some instances, even accusing the witness, just makes them decide to stop talking. Stop talking to the press, stop talking to the friends and family, and stop talking to the police. The quickest way to shut down a promising lead is to spread it all over the media. As an investigator, this is one of the more frustrating elements of the true crime genre. Just when you think you've let one of your persons of interest stew enough, you show up for an interview only to find out that 14 different true crime personalities have already been there and pissed them off so much that they don't say a thing. The real public pressure that comes from the true crime genre falls squarely on the shoulders of law enforcement. If it wasn't for my generous sponsors, I wouldn't be able to tell my stories or help you tell yours. 
Let's take a quick break and hear from one. The Legal Liability Risk Management Institute is the nation's largest provider of liability and risk management services in the United States. Our goal is to help reduce liability, reduce lawsuits, and enhance officer performance. Regardless of the size of your agency, we have a risk management solution. You may contact us at www.llrmi.com or call 317-386-8325. Have you ever built a house or done a major remodel? You get several bids from contractors, professionals who make a living off of building and doing exactly what you want done. Then, once they start working, do you jump in and start telling them how to do it and even start trying to finish some of the projects on your own without any experience or knowledge? If so, then you are cut out for the true crime genre. They are amateurs trying to do a professional's job. Keeping the investigation in the public eye, they put pressure on law enforcement to continue to investigate the cases. Cops get personal when it comes to cases, specifically violent crime. Vern Gebberth, the author of Practical Homicide Investigation, gave all his students in his courses a small plaque. I still have it, boxed up with all my other things I took out of the office when I retired. It says, remember, we work for God. The deceased can no longer defend themselves. They can no longer speak for themselves, and they cannot name their killer. The homicide investigator must do that for them. So, Forgive us when we take these cases home with us. We think about them when we wake in the morning until we go to bed at night. We take them personally. The problem is basic math. In 2020, there were 21,570 murders in the United States. There are roughly 15,000 detectives in the United States. Less than 10% of those detectives specialize in homicide. That means for the 1,500 homicide detectives out there all over the U.S., they are carrying 14.3 homicide investigations a year. Of course, that would only happen if they were all equally distributed across the United States, which they are not. Invariably, the professionals find themselves quickly overwhelmed, and sometimes that means we have to let go of cases that just go cold. Of course, a group of officers that drink milk of magnesia out of the bottle to control their ulcers really need some true crime podcaster blowing up the interwebs trying to get them fired because they haven't dug up Aunt Edna's backyard yet. We don't mind tips, and sometimes we'll even assist with the media to generate some if we think they will be helpful with the investigation. But as a general rule, we are doing everything we can. This type of media can exonerate those who have been unjustly convicted of crimes they didn't commit. Finally, we can agree on something. As we saw with the Thin Blue Line and Paradise Lost documentaries, an investigative reporter who reviews all of the documentation presented at trial can be very helpful in finding issues that were overlooked or prevaricated during the trial that ultimately put an innocent person behind bars. These two examples are good ones, but there are many more. The important point of distinction is that these types of true crime media don't convict the perpetrators. It only exonerates innocent people who have become victims of the system. There are many detractors of the true crime genre that have nothing to do with law enforcement. These detractors often call true crime garbage media or trash culture. They feel that these types of books, shows, and movies glorifies the criminal and takes advantage of the victim simply to make money. While I don't necessarily buy into that argument, I do think it brings up a very important point. The purpose of true crime as a genre, be it books, articles, podcasts, radio shows, TV shows, or movies, is to make money. Period. If they don't make money, 
then they can't keep doing it. So no matter how much of a crusader the host may be or how committed the production company is to the product, if they don't make money, it goes away. When money becomes the driving factor, then rules go out the window. Cops must follow rules. We have rules of evidence. We have rules for interviews and interrogations. We have rules for searches and seizures. And we have rules codified into the Constitution. No matter how much we may want to do something or how much we might believe someone is involved, we still have to follow the rules. Journalists have no such rules. It's easy for them to proclaim a suspect without evidence. It's easy for them to edit the entire project to point towards one specific person as the culprit. It's easy for them to make the cops out to be the bad guys. And it's easy for them to say we aren't doing anything. None of it has to be true. I'm not telling you to stop listening to your favorite true crime podcasts. Don't turn off the streaming true crime series on your favorite provider. And don't avoid the next great true crime documentary. Instead, when you watch it, do so with a critical eye. Understand the issues and the problems with the genre. And remember... That true crime doesn't have to be true at all. And that's the story we have to tell. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. 